Okay, start off. Trigger warning. I'm going to read out loud some gross things. Uh, then I'm going to talk about those gross things. I am sorry for that, but the people who we are reading write gross things, and we need to talk about it. Today, some of those things are going to be related to black people and Native Americans. So just a heads up if those things are triggering to you. Um, also, I am going to swear. <laughs> if you're listening to this then you and I know each other pretty well you know why I'm doing this um <laughs> basically I just don't suspect that I have a very large audience at the moment uh still I wanted to run through a bit of what this is that you are listening to why I'm doing it and give a little bit of backstory just to make sure we're all on the same page um so recently I did a lot of research into the financing and distribution of anti-muslim rhetoric in the 2016 Minnesota election and what I learned was amazing. It opened my eyes to this like entire parallel universe. Um, I know that's a cliche, so let me try to explain that a little bit more. Uh, Vice, you know, the, the news outlet, did this graphic once. There's a, a map of who Clinton and Trump supporters interacted with on Twitter. Uh, it shows just the entire Twitter sphere. Um, and at the middle, there's like this tentacled blob. It's mostly gray, it's got like some red polka dots, um, but it has like this really clear, definitively blue hue. Except that as you sort of go down and off to one side, uh, as you like kind of go down one of its tentacles, um, it starts to turn purple. And uh, this tentacle is huge and it just shoots out way off to the side and at the apex, like the whole way, this whole tentacle is just like bright red way over to the side, almost entirely isolated, um, just huge, massive red. And when I was doing this research, I kind of realized that I'd, I'd slipped into the Minnesota blogosphere equivalent of that conservative media bubble, um, the bog, if you will. My work focused on anti-Muslim content, so I didn't have time to read the posts that, like, for instance, lionized dictators, advanced uh, homo and transphobia, and white nationalism. Uh, that advocated widely disproven economic theories that just massaged data into meaninglessness, spread conspiracy theories, kind of like they just kind of wage a constant vendetta against like the very concept of labor unions, um, and like frequently just tell outright lies. Um, but they didn't directly relate to the topic at hand, so uh, I didn't even really get a chance to like read any of it. Now, one of the things that really blew me away when I was doing my research was that some of the people involved um, are taken extremely seriously. Uh, for instance, John Hinderocker has used his blog, Powerline, to call for more tolerance of Nazis while also calling Muslims barbarians. Uh, but he was still invited on to Kerry Miller on NPR to talk about economic issues as president and CEO of Minnesota's premier conservative think tank. And I'm not bringing this up to shit talk Miller. Uh, she kills it in that segment with Hinderocker. Uh, you can listen to it if you ever need just like a pick-me-up someday. But the vile things that this network and Hinderocker like personally and in particular have said, the things they've said is just, it's all just sitting there. Anyone can read it, but no one does. And no one takes the time to rebut the ridiculous claims. 
um, I mean, they're fucking ridiculous, but it, it still needs to be done. And I just feel like someone needs to be here just listening to what they're saying, uh, trying to stay on top of it, to, you know, sift through the river of muck to find the things that could put someone in danger or which intentionally spread dis and misinformation to achieve, like, often unstated political goals. Um, I also kind of want to get into some of the, like, the, the, the rhetoric games, the, the sort of the wordplay games that they play so that they can say horrible, horrible shit without saying, like, hardly anything at all. We can see if we can't all learn to, like, call out that horrible shit just a little bit better and to be a little bit more clear about it. Um, so, here we go. First up, in a series of posts this week, Intellectual Takeout riffed on a theme of traditional femininity. The first post, women can't have it all. Uh, well, this is what the author says. Uh, yes, we can tell girls they can shoot for the stars, go to college, be successful careerists, and make a difference in the world. But we should also tell them that this option will likely come at the expense of the other, often secret hope many of them carry in their hearts, being a wife and mother. Second post, titled Gender Neutral Bathrooms in the Middle School Girl, uses the lens of real femininity to attack trans women uh, with one of the most unfortunate word choices I've ever seen. Uh, it goes like this, it goes, But women's bodies are not a lie. Sex-specific bathrooms are a woman's rights and access issue, and succumbing to a minority that wants to feel better by imposing on women's spaces is a major step backward for social equality. Regardless of where you fall on the issue, that's a bad time to use the word minority. And the final post, titled Against Scruffy Hospitality, is of a genre I thought we, as the society, had moved beyond decades ago. Shaming women for not keeping the house clean enough. Last Monday was Indigenous Peoples Day, so happy late one. The Center of the American Experiment marked the occasion by posting about why it's wrong to not call Betamakaska Lake Calhoun. Betamakaska changed the name, rewrite history, redefine politics. It was a piece by Catherine Kirsten, and it is just straight up white supremacist propaganda, published by Minnesota's premier conservative think tank, though it's not exactly explicit. And that's where the difficulty lies. They don't come out and say white people are the best people because, like, who does that? They don't advocate for a white ethnic state. They're just talking about renaming a lake, and yet all my white supremacist alarm bells are going off. So how can we prove that this is white supremacist? Can we? Like, let's dig in and see. So the piece starts with a riff on George Orwell. Um, here's the quote. It goes, one of Orwell's key insights was that to gain the power to restructure a society, those with authoritarian ambitions must delegitimize what came before, so as to reshape a people's view of who they are and where they come from. The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history, he wrote. 
the, pe the piece then moves into the history of some of these changes um, that uh, liberals have attempted to make, and it sort of builds up to three purported attempts to change history by changing the names of places. They are Fort Snelling, uh, some buildings on the UMN campus, and Betamakaska slash Lake Calhoun. But we're just going to look at the last one because of time. Okay, so here's Kirsten's argument in brief. First, she says that the lake is not historically called Betamakaska, that, uh, let me see, Hayatamada, Inland Lake, and Metamodeza, Lake of the Loons, um, is what the lake was called, according to missionaries who spoke to the Dakota who used to live in the area. In fact, she says that Betamakaska is just what Native American activists are pushing. Um, her second argument is that name change proponents insist that retaining the Calhoun name amounts to an endorsement of slavery and so is immoral. Um, and she goes on to explain that the lake wasn't named Calhoun because of his endorsement of slavery, but because he'd called for the formation of a chain of garrisons to protect America from British forces. Uh, her second point sort of under this is that the Dakota enslaved people themselves, including both Indians and whites they captured in warfare. Some, she says, were adopted, some killed, and some sold or traded. Um, we'll just set aside that the first two examples, adopted and killed, are not are not enslaving people. That's just not what those words mean, but that's not important. Um, her last argument is that activists say that we stole the lake, but the Dakotas stole it from other tribes first. And in contrast to that, and this is the direct quote here, the U.S. government peacefully purchased the land, negotiating treaties with Dakota leaders. So if you look at these three arguments, they're not really a reason to not change the name. They don't really defend Calhoun himself or calling it Lake Calhoun. They just sort of attack the arguments the other side. So what is her argument for like why we should keep it? Like why is she so worried about the name change? Well, this is what Kristen says. She says, in crafting their narrative, name changers generally portray America's founding principles as hypocritical, its political institutions as corrupt, and its former leaders as scoundrels. By inducing guilt and shame in others, name changers seek to establish their own superior right to dictate historical standards to define what justice and equality demand. Now, I don't mean to radically misrepresent her, but it sounds like what she's alleging is that there's a, a big conspiracy of liberals to brainwash everyone by, like, inducing guilt and shame. Um... Okay, let's just like take her at her face for now. And let's start working through some of these arguments she makes. Um, we're going to start with her first, that it's a historically inaccurate name. Uh, listen to this passage from Kristen's article. Throughout this crusade, to change the name of the lake, the public officials involved have shown a scandalous disregard for historical truth. For starters, there's the new name itself. Traditional Dakota names for the lake are Hayetamide, Inland Lake, and Mede Medoza, Lake of the Loons, recorded by 19th century missionaries and historians who gathered the names from Dakota who lived in the area. Mede Makaska, the name pushed by Native American activists who share the park board's agenda, is historically unsubstantiated, according to independent Minnesota historians who have studied the question. First off, her sources are unnamed independent historians who have studied the question, whatever that means, 
and white missionaries. Also, Kristen does this weird thing, maybe you noticed it there, where she talks about the Dakota who lived in the area in one sentence and the Native American activists who share the park board's agenda in the next. You could almost be forgiven if, like, after reading this, you assume that the activists were some, like, hodgepodge collection of members from random tribes around the country, like, rather than, like, you know, Dakota people. Now, one of these Dakota people, these Native American activists, who advocated for the change is Kate Bean, a Dakota woman and a historian, a historian of Dakota history, who has a PhD from the University of Minnesota. Again, in contrast to Kirsten's unnamed sources. Okay, her second argument. She claims that the change advocates allege that keeping the name Lake Calhoun is an endorsement of slavery. So no one, no one thinks the city of Minneapolis endorses slavery. And last, I'm going to skip the, uh, her final argument that we negotiated a treaty line. Because really? Like, what the fuck, Kirsten? Like, let me just say this. They approach history in all its messy complexity, not as a search for truth, but as a vehicle for advancing a political agenda, even when that requires grossly distorting the historic factual record. Except, and this is really funny, that's actually a line from Kirsten's article. Oh, I almost forgot one. Her, her real final argument is this, and this is, again, reading directly from the article. In their zeal to identify angels and demons, name change proponents disregard the many good things the U.S. government did for the Indians. The Dakota often struggled to feed themselves in the harsh Minnesota winters. For that reason, in 1830, the government provided strong support to a model village at Lake Calhoun, where, using intensive agriculture, the Dakota raised so much food they were able to sell the surplus. In Kirsten's world, like white people taught the Dakota how to farm in Minnesota. And that's why we should keep the lake named Lake Calhoun for a man who never set foot in Minnesota to preserve our culture and history. <laughs> now, all the emphasis, like just the hyperbole about how we're rewriting the past to control the future um, that Kirsten gets into, that like weird hyperbolic emphasis on George Orwell's 1984 is really unfortunate. Um, because Kirsten took her Orwell reference like right to 11, like right off the bat. And she could have started like a little bit subtler. Like for instance, uh, Orwell wrote more than just 1984 in Animal Farm. And w one of my favorites by him is an essay called Politics in the English Language. It's mostly about how the purpose of writing is to clarify and to clearly communicate thought. But that this can sort of be like turned on its head and writing can be used to obfuscate rather than clarify. Sort of, he summed it up as, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. In her article, Kristen isn't advocating for genocide or anything nearly that indefensible, but her arguments do nothing to clarify the issue at hand and only confuse it. From a misreading of Orwell so spectacular it's hard to imagine it was an accident, to painting Dakota people as somehow fake Indians or something, to outright lying about history while bemoaning how people lie about history. This is all obviously nonsense. So what's the point of the article? Like just taking Kirsten at face value, just believing what she says, like it really sounds like she's trying to expose a liberal brainwashing conspiracy, which is insane. Like I'd like to write this article off as just like a one-off 
crazy misfire, but this was a 3,500-word article in the Center's quarterly magazine. It wasn't just a poorly vetted blog post. Is it possible that it's a work of white supremacist propaganda that obfuscates that indefensible position just enough to be able to defend it? I think you know where I stand on that issue. Kumbaya, my Okay, well, thanks for listening today. Before we go, uh, I've got one little thing for you. It's a read of the week. Now, normally I make a point to not link to any of these blogs or encourage people to read them for any reason. Uh, you know, don't feed the animals, right? But while this tour of the swamp is guided, you're going to have to get your feet wet. Every week I'll highlight one article that you really ought to read. This week it's Down and Out in Santa Monica by Scott Johnson. Channeling the voice of a young George Orwell, rich lawyer Scott Johnson gets the social journalist's style twist-turned upside down as he laments the sudden appearance of a horde of bums on the sands of his precious Santa Monica beach. While Orwell focused on scenes of poverty and depredation to shine a spotlight on injustice, Johnson shines a light on the bums and tells them to get off his beach. There were bums galore, enough of them that I thought if only they could get their stuff together, they would make up an impressive Occupy Santa Monica encampment. Up next week, we'll be talking about these blogs as journalism. What even is journalism? Do these blogs journal? Is there any danger to pretending to be journalism while pushing an extreme partisan political agenda? Is it even allowed to say extreme in journalism anymore? I don't know, but I'll probably be joined by a special journalist guest. I'm still trying to line it up, so no firm announcement yet. I'll let you know when I get a hard answer, but it's looking good. Uh, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>